Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On November 15, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled Technology, Innovation, and Regulation. Needless to say, that's a pretty broad theme, but provided for a wide array of interesting discussions of some of the ways in which regulation affects technological innovation and some of the ways in which technological innovation affects regulation. As always, the panel discussions are centered around new papers, which are available on our website. And the videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's fourth and final panel titled Disruptive Technology and the Future of Law. In this panel, Jennifer Huddleston, then of the Mercatus Center, presented her paper titled Disruptive Deference for Disruptive Technology. And Rob Weber, a professor of law at Georgia State University's College of Law, presented his paper, Will the Legal Singularity Hollow Out Law's Normative Core? They were joined in this discussion by Professor Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law in Houston, and the discussion was moderated by Ross Davies, my colleague here at the Scalia Law School. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Thank you, Adam. Mile wide, inch deep, right? Actually, I would claim more for this panel than, than Adam did. I would say that all the difficult questions that have come to mind and come up a little bit in the course of the day uh, can be answered. Will we have time to answer all of them? I don't know. But I think uh, between uh, the, the panelists we have up here, we do have sources of a great deal of wisdom. You all have this lovely brochure, so I won't waste a lot of your time going over what's in there. But I will point out that we have on the end our commentator, Josh Blackman, who is primarily a, a con law structural judiciary. And uh, <laughs> Jennifer, Jennifer Huddleston, who is primary, primarily a law and technology person. And Robert Weber, who is primarily a financial and commercial law person. But somehow they have all escaped their silos and are here to talk about administrative law, which in fact is uh, so ingrained and, and spread over so much of, of uh, life now that it, I guess, should come as no surprise that, that con law, law and tech, and commercial and financial law all uh, have a strong administrative law component. And so uh, we have Robert from Georgia State, Jennifer from the Mercatus Center, and uh, Josh from South Texas. And we will start with Robert, who we have, we have negotiated uh, an understanding where each of the panelists will get 13 minutes to speak. And then we will loop back to uh, uh, Robert for a couple of minutes of reflections on the other two, and then Jennifer for reflections on the other two, and then not Josh for reflections on the other two, because his only job was to reflect in the first place. Uh, And then, since we're tight on time, we'll go directly to questions from you all. So without more, Robert. Thank you, Ross. Um, So my project is going to ask you to look forward a little bit and to look back a lot. Um, I'm asking you to look forward to an event uh, that some legal futurists have termed the legal singularity. And we're going to look back to kind of classical liberal theory as well. The legal singularity is a sort of thought experiment representing the end game of uh, predictive legal analytics. But to some uh, legal futurists, it's not a hypothetical. They predict the eventual arrival of just such a moment and in the not too distant future. So to understand what I mean by legal singularity, it's necessary to first understand the revolution that's currently happening in predictive legal analytics. 
Predictive analytics more generally is part of a broad data science research program that applies computational power, especially in connection with machine learning. To obtain actionable insights from the massive amounts of stored data that only relatively recently have become susceptible to programmatic analysis. We should think of, of predictive analytics as a sort of core application of a new data epistemology in society, um, in what Jack Balkan has helpfully uh, labeled the algorithmic society. So then predictive legal analytics is simply the application of predictive analytics to legal knowledge. Predictive legal analytics promises enhanced efficiency of the market for legal services, not to mention the likely benefits to economic actors and social actors more generally, flowing from better knowledge of how the law will apply to their affairs. First-generation applications of predictive legal analytics are already fundamentally changing litigation practice, as David talked about just a moment ago. Um, they are also improving judicial performance, even amounting to predictive contract drafting and so-called rulemaking by robot the actual making of law by, uh, by machine learning. Now, some futurists predict that the development of predictive legal analytics techniques will, as I mentioned, eventually result in a legal singularity, a moment when the legal system finally overcomes what has traditionally been thought of as one of its most trenchant problems, namely legal uncertainty. The term singularity was coined by science fiction writer Werner Vinge in the mid-90s, who used it to describe the creation by technology of entities with greater than human intelligence. One futurist uh, describes the legal singularity in the following terms. The legal singularity, and I'm quoting here, the legal singularity will arrive when the accumulation of massively more legal data and dramatically improved methods of inference makes legal uncertainty obsolete. The legal certainty, sorry, the legal singularity contemplates complete law, the emergence of a seamless legal order universally accessible in real time. The law will become functionally complete. And another futurist anticipates that, quote, we will have enough information to anticipate virtually all contingencies such that laws are perfectly calibrated to their purpose, end quote. And just one more, uh, another predicts that, quote, the whole spectrum of activities covered by law will become accessible to structured computation, end quote. Furthermore, with the legal singularity, the legal system could, in principle, be governed entirely by AI. At that point, the legal system would become computationally irreducible, a condition that computer scientists use to describe the situation where there really isn't any way to see what's going to happen other than just running the algorithm. Law in these circumstances becomes self-executing like a computer algorithm across all of its applications. Now, could this happen? Obviously, our thoughts are immediately drawn here. Um, and with this project, I'm not so much investigating the probability or even the plausibility of a legal singularity uh, arrival. Um, for my own part, I suspect that, as is often the case with technology, the techno-futurists are probably a little bit overly exuberant. Um, and that they're also underestimating the sort of sticky persistence of institutions as social facts. Um, we got into a little bit of that at the end of the last panel. Um, but still, I think it'd be foolish to think that predictive legal analytics won't result in something at least approximating illegal singularity. And even if we're skeptical about the legal singularity, we might come close enough where it's worth it to um, think through the implications. And so to that end, I want to imagine what consequences what the consequences would be for the legal system if the legal singularity were to actually arrive. The legal futurists are curiously silent and acritical when it comes to these, I think, fundamental questions. And I want to focus here on one particular consequence of the legal singularity, 
its effects on the rule of law principle, a basic first principle of any conception of a liberal legal order. And to be sure, the legal system derives its legitimacy from all sorts of other principles, including democratic self-government most prominently, but the rule of law is always front and center. Deterministic, automated, discretion-free systems abound in modern societies, but we don't describe those systems as legal systems because they lack the normative foundation that a legal, liberal legal system enjoys, an endowment in large part attributable to its adherence uh, to rule of law norms. And so with this piece, I argue that the legal singularity in providing many apparent benefits that I acknowledge might strip some or all of the normative legitimating force the legal system enjoys in virtue of the rule of law. Stated differently, the concern is that the legal system, as we understand it, might not survive attempts to make it more efficient and effective through enhanced predictability. So what do I mean by the rule of law? Uh, well, the rule of law is a difficult to define concept. Um, I think it's helpful to distinguish between a thick conception and a thin conception of the rule of law. Some theorists adopt a thick, capacious formulation of the rule of law that associates it with a broad constellation of liberal values, such as justice and transparency, rationality, due process, fairness, human and civil rights, and democratic self-government. However, others prefer a thinner conception of the rule of law, warning that the tendency towards this more promiscuous, thicker interpretation of the term to include a laundry list of other liberal ideas will deprive it of any useful function. And I'm interested in more of a thin uh, conception of the rule of law. Because I think that that way we're at least referring to some identifiable characteristic that makes an identifiable, if incremental, uh, contribution to the legitimacy of a legal system. And the two pillars of any thin conception of the rule of law are that law must be predictable and law must apply universally. So before I turn to predictability, predictability and universality, I want to address as a preliminary matter the relationship between the rule of law and governmental discretion. Legal futurists frequently tout the legal singularity in terms of its ability to eliminate legal uncertainty and the need for any uh, legal discretion. When framing the issue in terms of discretion, they use the familiar rules and standards dichotomy, touting their newfound abilities to turn standards into completely specified rules and thereby eliminate the quantum of brute discretion that standards inevitably entail. And since uh, Dicey, who was the first to formulate a elaborate uh, modern conception of the rule of law. The rule of law has been thought of as an antidote to the human, the problem of human discretion in government. Human discretion in the legal system meant arbitrary government. Where there was discretion, there was room for arbitrariness, and the rule of law could not be said to obtain. And in a world before predictive legal analytics, let alone something like the legal singularity, it made sense for lawyers to collapse the notion of human discretion and arbitrariness. After all, arbitrariness was a human problem. It was always possible to identify the government actors who were acting arbitrarily. But on the other hand, if the legal singularity abstracts the legal system away from human discretion altogether, is there still an arbitrariness problem for the rule of law to fix? While reducing human discretion seems a necessary part of any legal system administered by persons, does its importance fade if it does not disappear altogether in a legal system governed by algorithms? Is human discretion a problem in and of itself that if counteracted simply disappears? Or, as I'm more sympathetic to, is it an epiphenomenal sign of a deeper problem that legal subjects have not consented to or participated in the design of the rules that bind them? That the legal rules do not depend for their existence on some conception 
of the welfare of the citizenry. And if that's the case, wouldn't this legal singularity set this arbitrary machine on autopilot? In other words, if the futurist response to the discretion problem is to imagine an algorithmic function that abstracts away from the human element of the law, have we solved the problem or have we created an equally vexing, if not bigger problem? That's the central question that my research here uh, is trying to get at. Now, returning to the core constituents of the rule of law, predictability and universality. Um, what would the legal singularity mean for these values? And the short answer is that it would whittle away at the normative force that those principles lead, sorry, lend to the rule of law. And I only have time really to discuss one, so I'll briefly address predictability. I'll focus on predictability because it is the raison d'etre of the entire predictive analytics revolution. The central promise of the legal futurist is that the legal singularity in making the legal system perfectly predictable will finally solve the twin problems of uncertainty and discretion that have plagued liberal legal systems for centuries. And yet it's not that simple. The rule of law's predictability principle states that a liberal legal system must be roughly predictable so as to provide legal subjects with, with guidance about how the law applies to them and their affairs. But we can conceive of this predictability principle in at least two variants. A functional, instrumental, weak form principle that prizes predictability simply because it enables subjects to plan their affairs and thereby foster social stability. And a normative strong form principle traceable to Lockean political theory that values predictability because it operates as a check on the exercise of arbitrary government power. I think the legal singularity would, meet, would certainly meet the weak form condition, which will allow legal subjects to plan their affairs, safe in the knowledge of how the law applies to them. But however, on its own, I don't think it will meet the strong form condition. The strong form Lockean conception of predictability requires uh, a further condition. Um, quoting from Locke here, he writes that the rulers must be kept within their bounds and not be tempted by the power they have in their hands to employ it to such purposes and by such measures as they would not have known and own not willingly. In this manner, laws predict about Predictability is a procedural transparency device that restricts the government from enacting arbitrary legal rules to which the polity did not and would not consent. To appreciate the importance of predictability to the legal system, it is necessary, therefore, to consider the citizenry's ongoing consent to and opinion of that system. It's not simply that the laws must be discernible. They also must be intelligible and amenable, at least in theory, to contestation. The authorities must, in Locke's words, own willingly that their exercise of governmental authority, making it possible for the citizenry to demand reasoned justifications and explanations for incursions into their otherwise natural rights to liberty. Predictability, then, is in practice a precondition of the people's informed consent to their government, which in turn is the touchstone of a free people not subject to arbitrary rule. Moreover, the reserved power of, the peop of a free people to revolt so familiar to the experience of American political theory and history, lurks in the shadows as a sort of vagrant threat that disciplines the government in the exercise of its delegated powers. The upshot here is that the legal futurists, I think, privilege or even fetishize the weak form of the predictability principle, throwing aside any commitment to strong form predictability and the values of liberty and non-arbitrariness that it promotes. And a cautionary directive emerges from this analysis that lawyers should remain attuned to the possibility that an uncritical embrace of predictive legal analytics <clears throat> in pursuit of a shrunken ideal of predictability 
might ultimately require them to toss aside much of the normative ballast that has kept the liberal legal order stable and afloat. And we would find ourselves sailing, sailing or afloat on new and choppy waters. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. And next, we have Jennifer. Thank you, and thank you all for being here this afternoon. My project examines what would happen if the courts were to consider some of the various forms of soft law that have become the predominant tool for governing various forms of technological disruption by the administrative state. So building on work that Adam Thier and Ryan Hageman and I have done in the past, where we've examined these various tools that are not exactly the formal governments that we may associate with rulemaking or even informal rulemaking, but are increasingly being used by policymakers, particularly in the administrative state, to govern these technologies that are moving faster than traditional tools can be. So what is soft law? Well, in some ways, it's a term that's easier to define by what it's not, which is it's not hard black letter law in the form of traditional rulemaking or legislation. It can refer to a variety of policy tools that vary quite a bit in their formality. Everything from guidance documents that an agency may issue all the way down to very informal tweets or comments that it's uncertain whether or not have any force of law. In the end, it's not the fact that agencies are using this that are the problem. In fact, as we argue in our previous work, it can be advantageous for rapidly moving and emerging technologies when existing hard law would get in the way or runs a risk of getting things wrong. But at the same time, there are clear concerns about the potential for abuse of this type of guidance-based approach to rulemaking. In fact, there is a lot of concern by other scholars, such as Wayne Cruz, about regulatory dark, dark matter, all these agency actions that happen and are unaccounted for, and how such a method of behavior could devolve into a form of soft despotism. Now, one of the logical checks to prevent agencies from running amok is the courts. And of course, there's then that question of what would happen if some of these soft law tools that have become so prevalent for emerging technologies got challenged in court. Clearly, one of the potential issues there are existing deference standards that result in giving the agencies, as others have put it, a thumb on the scale so that an agency's interpretation is more likely to get uh, given deference over that of those challenging it. Now, so far, most of these elements haven't actually been challenged in court, in part because of the very nature of soft law and its collaborative process. But inevitably, if this continues to be the predominant pool of technology policymaking, as well as as technologies increasingly blur lines and fail to fit inside the box, as we've heard in the various panels earlier today, it's likely that at some point these will wind up in court. So with that in mind, I look at three of the examples of soft law in the technology space and try and examine how traditional deference doctrines would play out in this regard. So starting with autonomous vehicles, in the transportation space, we've seen soft laws certainly be a dominant form of technology making, both at the uh, federal level with the Department of Transportation, who for a long time, autonomous vehicle policy was basically made by a PowerPoint presentation um, that is now formally available as a publication, but is still very difficult to cite in blue book format, just for the record. Um, it, as well as at state levels where we've seen departments of transportation or DMVs come to terms with the way that these new technologies may not fit their existing boxes. 
under the existing uh, um, deference doctrines, these type of documents would likely wind up in Skidmore deference and would result in agencies being given some sort of persuasive authority. We've seen this happen to some degree with concerns about things like comma AI or open source technology when it comes to autonomous vehicles. But more realistically, such a challenge could occur if we ever saw some of the um, claims that, for example, Tesla was going to switch, flip the switch on full autonomous mode. The question then becomes, who is the court going to defer to? And the answer is most with regards to whether or not this was allowed or not. The answer is most likely the agency. Additionally, this is likely to show that one of the reasons soft law is able to exist is because it's often backed up by the threat of hard law, that existing hard laws could come into play that result in being able to challenge some of these innovative norms. Another example has to do with flight sharing and flight now, and with regards to the way agencies sometimes reinterpret long-established meanings when it comes to new technologies. So with flight now, we saw a reinterpretation of what common carriage meant. And we saw agencies redefining what it meant to hold one out in the flight sharing environment. Such a decision is likely to be under our deference and is most likely to, again, result in the agency's favor. Now, some of this has been reformed to some degree in the recent Kaiser decision that has taken the thumb off the scale a little bit and required that courts not automatically assume that uh, such a reinterpretation would go under our deference, but instead examine it a little more closely. This is also likely to be the case if um, some of the micromobility forms that we've seen ever get challenged in court. But again, a lot of times this rulemaking is done not through establishment of new soft law even, but through interpretations of existing elements. Finally, of course, there's Chevron deference, which is least likely to come into play with regards to soft law because it usually is a result of more formal rulemaking that, and ambiguities that come into play. Again, though, when we're looking at things like the FDA rulings regarding mobile medical apps, if such decisions came into play, you're likely to see the agency deferred to. So why does this matter? Innovation has been an incredibly positive force, and it often faces a pacing problem and policymaking problems as well. These soft law tools have been useful, but again, to prevent assuming that an agency will always win or that it has its thumb on the scales when multiple interpretations are necessary, there would be a need for courts to be able to provide a check or for someone to be able to provide a check. These guardrails could prevent some of the abuses of soft law while still allowing the advantages that it provides for making technological policy. With regards to other potential options beyond the courts, there's of course the possibility that we could see legislation that either reformed agencies and their use of these soft law tools, reformed the deference they received in court, or reformed or created formal hard law when it came to some of these technology policies. Unfortunately, the demosclerosis of Congress, the slow rulemaking, and the unlikelihood that many of these issues get taken up are unlikely to result in that being a potential solution. Additionally, with executive orders, while we have seen some movement, both with regards to administrative reform writ large, as well as to specifically with regards to guidance documents, there still is the fact that executive orders last basically as long as the executive. They themselves do not necessarily have the ongoing force of rulemaking and continue that uncertainty of what's next. So with that in mind, the courts are the most likely case for long-term reform that would both allow the advantages of soft law 
as well as to provide that check when it was potentially abused. Additionally, the environment has appeared to be ripe for potential administrative law reform through the courts. We saw recently with Kaiser and some of the reconsideration of these doctrines. We've also seen more discussion about non-delegation doctrine in light of Gundy and kind of a general openness, it seems, to at least examining the role of the administrative state. But with this in mind, it's important to recognize that these tools can have a positive impact, that they can be useful when it comes to avoiding the pacing problem because of their flexibility, because of their ability to work with innovators in a collaborative mechanism. We've heard about several of these tools over the course of the day and the way they are able to, in, to enable innovation to continue and develop even when policymaking is stalled to some degree. But with that in mind, it's important to understand that this dis disruptive technology will inevitably disrupt not only existing policymaking tools, but hopefully also require the courts to re-examine how they consider those policy tools. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. And I would like to pause for just a moment to let all of us appreciate Adam White, because organizing a conference in a way that anticipates future conferences is a special gift. And I see in the future predictive soft law <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a theme. Just seems quite promising in any event. Uh, Josh Blackman, do you have a thought or two or 10 sure. about uh, Robin Jennifer's thoughts? Sure, I'll do my best. Um, thank you to Adam. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm an alum of George Mason. I had Ross Davies as a professor, and I've known Jennifer for some time, and I met Rob about a year ago to workshops. So it was very fun to be here. Um, but why am I here? I am a constitutional law professor. What's my role? Um, I have a little bit of input on these elements. In 2009, I had an idea. I had a joke. I said, wouldn't it be funny if Vegas took odds on the Supreme Court? The court had just argued the Citizens United case. It was a huge First Amendment case. Like, you know, what are the odds the court declares the campaign finance law unconstitutional? I just made a joke to a friend. I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if there was a fantasy league for the Supreme Court? And I said, huh. Maybe I should be the one to create that. Uh, my background was in computer science, and in the span of maybe three or four weeks, I built a site, fantasyscotus.net. What hell did I know? Uh, you could go in and make predictions on how each of the nine justices would vote in a given case. It went viral. In fact, I launched it, oh my God, 10 years ago this week. It was the week of the Federalist Convention in 2009, so we are at a 10-year anniversary. I didn't realize it. Um, it went viral. Thousands of people have used it. Now, why is this relevant? Uh, there's a concept known as the wisdom of the crowds, which you're probably familiar with, where if I asked any one of you, what is the temperature of this room? You'd give me a number that maybe is right or wrong. But if I ask all of you that what's the temperature and they average those numbers out, we're going to be really close to the right answer. And this principle, the wisdom of the crowds, was then very useful. I had hundreds of people making predictions in the Supreme Court, and I found, wow, what if we just averaged them out? And I found that they were pretty accurate. 70%, they beat random. That was phase one of my entree into fantasy scopes. But then we moved closer to the singularity, I suppose, where some colleagues and I developed an algorithm to predict Supreme Court cases. Uh, Dan Katz and Mike Bomarito, they're both now, well, they, Dan was at Michigan State, uh, but now he's at Chicago Kent. And Mike Bomarito is kind of in Michigan somewhere. He's always floating around. Uh, and we built this algorithm 
that looked at almost 80 variables for every case it decided. And our algorithm was not quite as good as the crowds, but was in the same ballpark. But then we went to phase three and said, how do we combine, how do we have a synergy between the crowds and the algorithms? And this see, we were pushing us towards the Terminator-like ultimatum, or not the Terminator, singularity uh, that Robert discussed before. Um, and this was just initially a hobby that became a research project. And then it went into a for-profit corporation. Uh, Dan and Mike founded a company called Let's Predict, which was one of these newfangled legal prediction companies that uh, uh, Robert mentions in his paper. Um, I had some bogus title that I think was Director of Judicial Analytics or something. You know, I, I'm not there for the money. I'm there for the courts. Uh, but I very much enjoyed my time. I very much enjoyed my time working on how to use technology to predict the outcome of judicial decisions. Um, I'm no longer with the company. They got acquired and I, I, I say exited, uh, but that's just fine. But this was a wonderful experience to learn how these legal tech companies actually operate. Um, now, I want to actually respond to both Jennifer and Robert's papers by combining them. Ready? What soft law? will regulate Singulatum, right? How will these legal technology companies that are very sophisticated be regulated? Um, and this is something I've considered before. Uh, the legal marketplace is somewhat unique in that it's self-regulating. There's no federal lawyer commission, Lord help us. Um, you know, the ABA only just makes people cry occasionally. They don't have any actual power, right? This is a fairly feckless body. Um, what will the regulatory framework look like? for these sorts of increasingly smart legal technology products. Um, and I can see a few different points of entry that I want to talk about. Uh, the first one is resistance by state bar associations. Um, many of you may not be lawyers, but to become an attorney, you have to go to a, in most states, at least three years of law school, and you need to take an exam, which is not very hard, but it's a lot of work to prepare for. And then you're a lawyer and you're in for life. Um, as an attorney, I can do stuff you can't, right? You cannot hang up a shingle and say you're practicing law. That would be what's called the unauthorized practice of law, UPL. Uh, these things are seldom prosecuted, but it is a, uh, a deterrent for legal tech companies. I'll explain why. Um, you've all heard of LegalZoom, I'm sure. This is they advertise on the radio and TV all the time. This is a company that tries to make um, legal services more affordable. And they have a lot of non-lawyers, paralegals basically, uh, uh, doing legal services. And a number of states have tried to shut them down, state bars. Uh, why? We're George Mason. It's competition. Rent seeking is very powerful. And the bar doesn't like people intruding on their rents. Um, and there are arguments for, for eternity of whether this is a good idea or bad idea. Do you need a, someone with a three-year degree to prepare a will? Probably not. You know, to have a complicated trust, maybe you need it, right? But there's a lot of resistance from the bars of UPL. Um, I've long worried that the state bars will treat companies like Lex Predict and Lex Machina and these other firms as legal service providers. Um, they are doing stuff that increasingly looks like legal services. I'll give you an example. Historically, if I went to a law firm, I said, you know, where should I file this case? What's the best form for this kind of claim? You know, a partner would assign associates to do a survey of different courts and figure out what kind of jurisdictions have the best claims. Or I can go to a Lex Machina type service 
and get a breakdown of every single judge of how often they grant motions in my favor in each jurisdiction. That's powerful. And it increasingly looks a lot like what lawyers do. Um, at this point, these companies are fairly new. And I don't think that the sort of threat is there yet. But I think at some point, as we go towards a singularity, uh, we'll see more discussions. And in every sense, a UPL suit is soft law. Right? This is not a bright line standard. This is sort of an ad hoc suit that can be brought on a case-by-case basis to shut down firms that maybe step too far out of line. But I think the first form of resistance we'll see is from state, I'm sorry, uh, from state bar associations. By the way, this is a 50-state solution. This is not a single federal standard, which makes it very difficult to practice the internet because let's say you have a website that's available in all 50 states, you don't have to comply with 50 regimes of legal service providers, which is very onerous. Um, the second pressure point I see is actually from judges. This one's a bit counterintuitive. Um, about a decade ago at a conference, I was talking to an appellate judge, and I was mostly joking with him, but I said, if I can build an algorithm that predicts what, you, what, what you're going to do, what would you do? He said, I'm going to do the opposite. Just think about that for a minute, right? Judges do, like, do not like to be told what to do. And if we have these computer algorithms that are so smart that they can predict the outcome of court cases, you know, at what point do judges say, screw this, I'm doing the opposite, right? Or they try and reconsider their, their notions based on what the algorithm tells them. Or, for example, back when he was in the court, what if Justice Kennedy can't decide a case and checks fancy SCOTUS and say, what do people think I should do? Maybe I'll do that instead. Um, there are some really strange ethical issues there of how judges who are human will react to a computer telling them what they should do. You know, if any of you watch baseball, they now have a strike zone, right, painted on the screen. And they paint whether the ball is a strike or a ball. And the judge calls a strike when it's outside. The strike zone is like, well, that, that, that ump is an idiot, right? That should, have been a, that should have been a ball. After the game, the umps do get reviewed. Are they calling balls and strikes correctly? Um, and, you know, maybe that has a good influence on umpires. I don't know what would happen judges to have the computer telling them, yeah, you, you botched this case. It's not just an appellate court who is, again, a bunch of humans, but it's something, you know, you should have decided X when you said Y. Um, so I think judges, when they actually recognize what this sort of technology Robert describes, uh, will get, we'll get nervous. Um, in France, for example, I'm not kidding you, there's actually a law passed, this is hard law, that makes it a, that makes it a crime to have analytics about individual judicial behavior. You can assess courts, but not individual judges. Um, and that's a, that's a stunning limitation on algorithms that I haven't heard of in any other country, but France has that one. I can say, I, uh, say the link later, Jen, uh, if you remind me. Um, it, it was, I saw this, I was, I was shocked that they do not want people breaking down judge by judge how judges behave. Okay. The third type of resistance I see comes from the bar itself, the, the lawyers. Um, a lot of these tech companies have been very good at raising money, but not so good at getting clients. And that's, I guess, true of all startups. Um, why? Law, law firms, by and large, are, uh, how should I say, skeptical of this technology. Why? Because we know better, right? We went to law school. We went to Harvard. Sorry, Adam. Right? We, we clerked on these fancy courts. How can a computer tell us what, you know, something better than we can? And this is a sort of resistance to change you see in almost all facets of life. Um, some, some law firms are actually embracing this or even developing internal technology to make predictions. But I think a lot of law firms will resist it as a general matter. 
Um, eventually that will break. I think you'll have some firms that differentiate themselves in the market because they have the source of technology. I think the firms will resist. Uh, the last form of resistance I want to talk about, I think is the most important one, which is people. Um, lawyers must never forget that we are serving clients. We are not there to simply just bill and make money, which I don't, I'm a professor, I don't make any of those things. But you, lawyers exist to serve clients. And there's a certain um, ethos or a certain ethics that you expect. Think of the great lawyers in fiction, Atticus Finch, right? Uh, can you code? Can you program an Atticus Finch, to kill a mockingbird lawyer, into an algorithm? I, I, I don't think even a singularity can do that. Right? There's a certain ethical component of being an attorney that's going to be very difficult to replicate as, um, as code. Um, and this, this, this leads to the ultimate question of trust and I think predictability, which are the two things Robert uh, discussed. Uh, how much trust can you have in an algorithm that, that was built by someone who you'll never meet, right? There's certain assumptions that are embedded in all code that decide a conflict one way or the other. And ethical situations in law aren't always black and white. They're often very gray. Um, and then there's the issue of predictability, right? If all these algorithms give you the same answer, right? Can they actually be advocates? Because you know, nope, you're going to lose. not going to take the case. Um, all these issues are not to say that uh, legal analytics are bad. I do think that they can help serve access to justice. Um, I do think that they can help address some uh, gaps in the way people are able to access the law. Uh, but I would hope as we think of the legal structure as either hard or soft law, uh, that, we, that, that we don't go too quickly. Again, I see this as a former person was, who worked in one of these companies. Uh, the state bar should approach these issues with um, some uh, trepidation, just some caution, but not in a way to stifle them. For example, imposing a 50-state regime on algorithms over how they present data, um, I think would be devastating. I don't, know, I don't know if maybe federal legislation is the answer. I think, uh, I haven't mentioned the First Amendment yet. I think a lot of these things are unconstitutional, but I'll leave that perhaps for Q&A, my, my non-rebuttal, surrebuttal. But the, the question over how you have a legal practice in all 50 states each with its own framework for an online website, I think can stifle and kill the industry uh, uh, in, in staggering ways. I think I'm out of time now, but I thank you again to, to Jennifer and Robert and, and Ross and also my good friend Adam and also Leah, who does all the hard work outside. Uh, it's good to be back at the uh, Center for the Study of the Ministry of State. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Rob, you want to take a couple minutes? you have a, a, another thought or two before we open the floor? Um, I think it's probably best to just open the floor. Uh, Jennifer? Yep. As I say, I'm going to just jump on a couple of points, um, primarily starting with the last point that was made about the, the fact that you're increasingly seeing, for a lot of different occupations, law being one of them, this kind of cross-border yeah. ability, uh, ability with the internet. And I think this also points out some of the interesting elements that may be leading to some of this rethinking of different regulatory modes as well, um, particularly when it comes to things like right to earn a living. Um, we've seen this happen, not necessarily play out in the legal context yet, but there have been cases brought when it comes to, say, online dietitians and online veterinarians. Um, so I would guess that actually the, the, a similar approach might be able to be taken in that context, although it's interesting to think about it because law is 
usually so heavily regulated by a state level, um, what that would mean. With regards to the, the judges, I would think that, you know, judicial ethics as well as um, individual codes of ethics of different bar associations will likely be used to attempt to, to catch up. And it might be interesting, but you may get some kind of laboratory of democracy type of approaches. You may have one state take a very France style approach and have a very top down. I'm not entirely sure that that would work on a, you're, you're the constitutional scholar. So there's probably, we, we can discuss uh, some of the potential hangups with that type of law, but also just in terms of allowing different experimentation and different forms of governing these systems. And that's what we've seen with soft law of everything from basically completely hands off to slight regulation, um, be it via multi-stakeholder processes, kind of self-regulatory bodies, things like that, to more formal regulation like sandboxes, um, to true black letter law. And it's likely that the actual solutions involve some degree of all of them. Thank you, Jennifer. Rob has now had a thought. I hope I still have the prerogative right ahead. to weigh in here. Um, hope I didn't wave it. Uh, <laughs> but so I think that it's helpful to kind of break out the four different um, tension points there of bar associations, you know, law firms and lawyers, uh, clients and uh, judges. Because um, you already see, I mean, the first generation tools here that it's interesting to hear your own personal experience with that. Um, they are proliferating. And I think you're right that you're going to see pushback from these various constituencies, stakeholders in the in the legal system. Um, but you know, it becomes even more difficult to s predict how things will shake out when you consider that it's not just these private sector, you know, predictors that we're talking about, but we're also talking about AI and machine learning being used in the agencies. Um, even in legislatures, I mean, I haven't heard of that happening yet, but I'm sure it's coming down the pike. Drafting legal, uh, drafting legislation that is calibrated to some other um, set of parameters or inputs that is updated automatically via artificial intelligence. Uh, and then uh, even judges, right? Even courts themselves, there are some nascent uh, uh, efforts by courts to. Um, use machine learning in order to understand, uh, for instance, particular moments during the course of a proceeding where judges in general or even particular judges need to be particularly mindful of certain uh, biases or tendencies that that judge or the court might uh, have as an observed effect. Um, I mean, ultimately, I, I'm sympathetic to the reaction, right, to the sort of reflexive reaction uh tenor of your of your remarks i think i mean in part that's why i wrote this piece it's like i think that the futurists are getting far ahead of themselves and and that that there will be that like the you know i said earlier institutions are sticky and there's like a social facticity to our legal institutions and i think that one way of kind of responding to josh here is to point out that um that's exactly what i'm talking that, that the legal system 
um, needs to, and frankly ought to, and will uh, resist. I just don't know exactly what form that resistance is going to take. Thank you, Rob. And now, questions. Harry. The French approach, being kind, is at least naive. Because if I want to set up my website to do analysis in Quebec, is outside French jurisdiction. And I can establish communication through a VPN. So you also cannot cut my communication. How legislation can go over all the legal and all the technical tools that we already have to circumvent this kind of legislation? Otherwise, how can we legislate against the sunrise? Oh, boy. Uh... Well, let me open up another front of my varied career. Um, I represent in court the guy who puts the 3D printed gun blueprints on the internet, uh, and everyone hates us. Um, there have been efforts by both state governments and federal governments to try and shut us down. Um, the short answer is you cannot stop the signal. Uh, you can't. We actually had a judge issue an a judge in New Jersey tried to issue an injunction to block us from putting files on the internet. That's not how this stuff works. Uh, we, we actually tried to comply with we did the best we could. We actually created an IP filter for all IP addresses in New Jersey. They couldn't access the site. And eventually, it was the entire eastern seaboard called our blue wall uh, to block people from the internet. Um, no one ever done that before. That's like North Korea level stuff. Uh, but we tried to figure it out. But of course, if you have a VPN, you have a cellular network, you can bypass it in five seconds. So the, the, the efforts to enact these laws aren't actually designed at stopping them. It's to prevent the technology from being developed in the first place. That is, if you're a company that wants to build legal analytics, of course you can create a tool that will be bypassed by VPN, but you may not just put this internet, sorry, you may not put it online at all to avoid the liability. And that's, that's what these laws are designed to do, to prevent the technology from even going into execution. But thank you for the question. I, I, if I may just weigh in on this, because it's interesting. I hadn't heard of this French law, but I mean, you could. You could ban, I suppose, French lawyers from using the technology um, or from yeah, yeah. participating in your client's use of it, uh, in which case, since there is a sort of central way by which French legal disputes are adjudicated, namely through the French courts, then I suppose that does kind of perhaps give you some jurisdictional hook, effective jurisdictional hook. I, I think it also raises some interesting questions, too, of how far, particularly when we're talking about algorithms, how far does a ban like that extend? Does it have to be a ban specifically? It, does the algorithm have to be specifically developed for that purpose? Or if I develop some sort of you know mass filter where I just pull all the opinions and use it to then send to a law clerk, is that because I use the algorithm for that uh, purpose? In, in France, it applies to everyone. Researchers, lawyers, tech companies, it applies across the right. board. Yeah. It, it, this is an insane law. I'll send you this later. But this, this law is nuts. So this is what not to do. I agree. I agree. Oh, why don't we go middle of the row, then back right, then our fearless leader, I believe. 
Well, thank you for the panel. Um, I guess that I guess my question is for Robert Weber, and I, I'm still trying to, you know, as we move toward the legal singularity, I'm, I'm still hung up on the idea that it's still going to be humans who are going to be programming the computers, so to speak. You know, that the, they're the ones who are still going to be constructing the algorithm. And so it's hard, it seems to be really still very hard, if not impossible, to avoid the human messiness associated with that. Yeah, I mean, short answer is I, I agree. Um, if I put on my futurist hat, um, how might they respond to that? Uh, and actually, let me add further, I think that's exactly the problem. Um, or one of the problems is who's writing these algorithms that then become this new legal system. Um, if, if the end result there is that the rule of law evaporates, well then it seems one possible solution other than just resisting it outright is to say, we need to build in more of a participatory infrastructure on the front end, right? To make sure that we in fact do consent to this algorithmic law. Um, but yeah, if I put my futurist hat on, you know, they would say, uh, well, the, the algorithms would train themselves on the legal phenomena that are happening right now. Um, and they would then, um, generate new data themselves in the form of new outcomes that you could trace to the relevant variables that are feeding into the AI. Um, and the system would at a certain point just become uh, black boxed, I suppose, you know, is the term that gets used, right? At a certain point, um, irrespective of whoever the decisions were on the front end in designing the algorithm, it would acquire a sort of life of its own. Um, and it it would always spit out an answer. I mean, I think that's what the futurists would predict. I think I heard two different uh, strains here. One is that there's this technology that's really good at predicting what judges will do when faced with a particular case. The second is that somehow or other, there's going to be technology that's going to say, is a single right answer to a legal case. And I think those are enormously different, and, and I'd be very interested, particularly from Mr. Weber, on this. So the Supreme Court heard the case on DACA, okay, which had multiple aspects to it, including whether it was constitutional, whether it was uh, arbitrary and capricious, all kinds of different things. And there are the justices came at it from very, very different perspectives. I'm just not following how, quote, a an algorithmic system of AI or legal singularity, quote, comes up with a, that there's some single right answer, because I think there are many ways to look at it legally, and there are obviously philosophical and public policy impacts on judges who are looking at it. So I'd appreciate any thoughts the panel had on that. I think we can start here, and we can move through all three, since I forecast, I analytically predict that all three of our panelists have a view. Uh, so I, I agree with your characterization that these first generation applications are very different than what 
a legal futurist would describe as some sort of legal singularity. And I do think, I mean, look, I, I'll concede that it's it seems awful abstract at times and it's a draft paper. So I, I still need to work this out a little bit more. Um, what What is it that in practice um, a legal singularity looks like when we consider, for instance, the DACA case? And one easy way out of that is to say, well, once the legal singularity happens, those sorts of messy institutions that you're talking about even things like ideology or philosophy, um, let alone something like the Supreme Court, which consists of nine people, uh, maybe we're looking at maybe the futurists um, or rather maybe the people that are observing the legal singularity when it happens will find all of that a little bit anachronistic, right? And um, so that's sort of the easy way to say it. But along the way, there'll be some transition to the point where you know, you won't just jump immediately to the point where you feed in your variables and you get law's answer. And what's that going to be like when you have a Supreme Court, when you have inferior courts, when you have legislatures and, um, and, and committees and so forth, uh, administrative agencies, and everybody's making law, interpreting law, talking about law all the time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess it's a thought experiment more than anything else. It's the best I can say. Uh, I think that, that the idea though is that law has one answer and we, again, I'm, I have my futurist hat on now. Um, and a lot of the messy uncertainties, we can scrub away a lot of the messy uncertainties that condition the way that we think about the legal system. Um, through the use of predictive analytic technology. Um, and so to us, it seems like an inscrutable uh, phenomenon when we try to predict what the Supreme Court does. Um, but again, maybe that's just simply a function of the fact that we need to have the Supreme Court. Um, and the, you know, the Supreme Court ultimately Law is what? If, if, if law does anything at all, it produces decisions that are binding. And, um, and, and the futurists say, well, we can imagine providing those decisions algorithmically without the need to some, without the need to channel, turn those legal interpretive questions through a particular institutional architecture. One thing you said, excuse me, if it's possible. Um, one thing you said was law has one answer. So you think about the Olmstead case, 1925, Chief Justice Taft said, if you don't invade the house to put the bug on, there's no privacy that's protected by the Constitution. And 40 years later, Katz said, hey, the guy, you know, would have said, the guy's in his house. He's not expecting that you're going to be lurking around outside and putting a bug in here. And therefore, he has an expectation of privacy. So there really are two answers there, depending on how you look at it. And so, you know, I, I, I think I don't have any doubt that all kinds of things are coming. But I, I, if it's based on the principle that there is only one answer, and I could go back to Plessy versus Ferguson. I mean, I could stay here all day long. Uh, there were two, two answers there, and one of them was correct in 1890, and the other one's 
now what everyone else believes. So there you go. And, and I think just really briefly here, I think you're right. And I mean, you just said it. it that was the right answer. The, the legal technologists would say, well, that was the right answer in 1890. So the, I think that the AI can train itself or learn from different socio-cultural uh, phenomena around it. Um, and that that is by no means, you know, um, the legal futurists don't deny that at all, I suppose. Jennifer, would you like to chime in? So I haven't thought about this question much, and I think the interesting thing that's posed by it is it depends on whether or not you agree that there is always one right and one wrong answer when it comes to how a court should rule. I think that to Josh's point, in some ways it would be easier to predict what an individual judge may or may not do as opposed to what a um, kind of broader automatic answer would be. And there's always those those variables that aren't necessarily taken into account. And there's it's very easy to get into those gray areas very quickly. Um, there certainly have been amazing advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And that's not to say that it could never get to that point. But I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see if a legal singularity could ever actually occur given the nature of, of law itself. Finally, Supreme Court, my, 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 my area of expertise. Well, um, in our fantasy's ghost tournament, some cases are easy to predict than others. Um, the boring cases that you don't care about on bankruptcy or ERISA, right? Those cases were at 80% accuracy. The sort of meaty cases on hot issues like a DACA or the Second Amendment or abortion, those are much harder to predict as a matter of algorithms. Um, I don't know that I want a robotic Chief Justice Marshall telling us what's good and what's bad. Um, maybe the political process is a good way to resolve that, but that's a question far beyond soft law or singularity. This is a unique institution or political system that uh, courts should be very weary of. I think Adam is up next. Well, this has been um, fascinating, and the papers are, are very challenging. It seems to me that the discussion that you're having today is sort of the century after the legal realists. It's sort of their dream um, of law really as, as engineering and, and social science. I have a question um, mostly focused at Rob, but for everybody. You've identified, I guess, two threats to law's normative core, one on the side of the lawmaker. The idea that that the work of governance and lawmaking becomes less and less a participatory and transparent process, and more and more just the work of an, of engineering, maybe in the end engineering by the the machines themselves. And then on the other hand, there's the the people being regulated, who treat law more and more like a series of predictions. Right? Holmes, fam- I think I'm borrowing this from Josh. Holmes famously said that the law yeah. is just what a prediction of what the court will do. I look at it through the eyes of the bad man. We'll give the bad man big data, and we're sort of where we are now. So I get, my question is, which should we fear more uh, in hollowing out law's normative core? It's what the government might do in the lawmaking process, or is it in what the public will do in the way they treat law when the legal singularity arrives? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let, yeah, let, let me respond by kind of going back to the, the issue that as it was confronted by the realists, um, 
I mean, there's a way in which the like, if, there's a way in which if you read a lot about uh, of these accounts of predictive legal analytics and some of these really uh, exuber exuberant accounts, subset of those accounts that I'm calling legal futurism. Um, and you you read it as just rehashing what the legal realists did a hundred years ago. Law is just systematized prediction. That's all it was. Um, but the legal realist movement kind of flamed out. It made an important contribution to the way that um, that we talk about law and that we teach law in the United States. But ultimately, it flamed out. Like law's normativity persisted in some sense. The legal realist told us that you know it's just like any other social science and didn't have any privileged claim to um, to normative bindingness. Um, and there's a there's a quote. Uh, I think it's Thurman Arnold says that as it turned out, it it legal realism didn't prove to be sustaining food for a civilization. Uh, because it turned out, at the at the time at least, uh, and in part this is no doubt due to the fact the totalitarian experience and the experience of World War II that was happening at the tail end of the legal realist movement, people realized, oh no, normativity does matter. We need we need rights. We need a legal system that we believe in. Um, and maybe you know that's that's kind of one way of of. Uh, framing a response to your question, which is that, you know, the, the people, the legal subjects themselves, ultimately, I think, are going to be the ones, Josh said this in his remarks, who react to this technological development. And I think um, that's where we ought to keep our eyes focused. Next question. Thank you. Um, so I, I wouldn't have said that the Plessy versus Ferguson was right when it was decided. And let's just hypothetically say it was wrong when it was decided. Um, what would happen with an algorithm that took a decision, a Supreme Court decision? Is Would the algorithm ever realize that it was wrong? What does it mean to be right or wrong? These are these are these are so questions that go segregation really, should be, have been held unconstitutional. Uh, it's uh, Brown didn't overrule Plessy. <laughs> it didn't actually read it. Brown only said separate equals not relevant in the context of education. My point is the court itself has never said Plessy was wrongly decided in all of its context. So even the Supreme Court didn't actually overrule Plessy. There. So you're saying that an algorithm, if we it had been an algorithm, then we would have gotten to Brown v. Board of Education? Oh, God. It, it, far too much calm left me to get in three seconds, but uh, an algorithm can be reprogrammed, and if it's, if it's human masters decide it's wrong, they can be changed. Um, but I suppose if it's completely autonomous singularity, then it decides for itself what's right and wrong, and then we have no word for it. But, but again, it, all algorithms are programmed, right? All algorithms are programmed, and if we program it to understand that law today is a law of tomorrow, then law becomes stasis. I mean, I've written about this point elsewhere. If we actually choose a legal singularity, then law cannot evolve. It will be fixed in time. Uh, unless the algorithm decides itself to bend with the times as it goes. So these are different questions. But the, the brown plessy thing I can do hours on and it's not going to fit here. Next question. So, 
Pardon me. So following up on that, I mean, does that mean that legal singularity is the death of counter-majoritarianism? Because you you either have a, 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 you know, dictatorship by algorithm or it's learn it's it's self-learning it's picking up data from society but it's picking up the data from the majoritarian view of society yeah Uh, let me take that one i considered when i was building my algorithm whether i could rig it with a presumption of liberty that is to basically factor in a libertarian bend to all the opinions that's what i prefer Uh, i was mostly joking but depending on what your philosophical bend is when you design these algorithms you can program in majoritarianism perhaps counter-majoritarianism you can factor in different types of deference. We talk about Chevron, right? Those are things you cope with. Those are human judgments that you have to insert of how the algorithm should function. And and you could, I mean, if you're training it on just simply data from legal history, then I suppose that counter-majoritarianism, to the extent that it actually is in fact reflected in our legal history, um, would be expected to have some effect on the algorithm's operations moving forward. Again, with my de rigueur disclaimer that I have my legal futurist hat on. Next question? Or does this mean that I get to ask the question? I'd like to, if I may, follow up in a way on Kate's question and offer uh, a thought problem, a small thought problem built to some extent, on what both Robert and Jennifer have offered us in terms of possible or the uncertainty of the future in both the development of soft law and the development of algorithms or approaching the singularity. Uh, Let's take this from a steampunk perspective. Let's imagine that the the world that Bruce Sterling and William Gibson imagined uh, in which Babbage's difference engine actually becomes a functional tool in the the mid to late 19th century. And using steam-powered computing, we managed to arrive at the singularity in, let's say, 1890 or thereabouts. How would the, 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 our legal world respond to a world in which, whether you think Plessy was wrong or not, the case was decided? If you, you know, whether you think, you know, and, you know uh, the Pollock case on, on, on the income tax was correctly decided or not. It's been done. How do things change thereafter? And is it possible that soft law is the answer to the limitations of the singularity? In other words, could those sneaky bureaucrats soft law their way around the certainty of the singularity? Are you saying soft law? Soft law should. I'm not saying should anything. Or soft law could 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 nudge you towards certain types of results. That's what you're getting at, Russ. I I don't see the question as could it nudge you to certain types of results, but to the to some of the concerns about what a singularity could result in. Could soft law itself actually almost be a check on an algorithmic court? Is how I see the question being framed. Um, I think it'll, it, what my brain immediately goes to is, well, it would be interesting because some of the administrative law doctrines that encourage the use of soft law wouldn't have been developed. So then the question is, is the algorithm smart enough to avoid the development of the doctrines 
that then encourage, you wouldn't have the APA yet. Does the APA still get in existence under? <laughs> so we, need, we do need Sarah Connor in the end, don't yes. we? Yes. Well, and, and uh, I mean, to the extent that soft law means, among other things, some residuum of discretion, then it, by definition, uh, isn't part of this legal team, right? Um, and, you know, the notion that, that law is about decisions, full stop, um, is by no means a universally shared idea, but it's the core tenet of legal positivism. It's like, it's, it's not a crazy idea that law exists to provide social order through the settlement of um, disputes to, in Hobbes's terms, prevent brawls from arising. Um, so, you know, provided that the, the difficulty I think that we have when we think about this legal singularity is, well, how can we retain, it's like we've solved the discretion problem, but we find that we have created this much bigger problem, which is how could, once we create a legal system bereft of discretion, like was discretion actually serving a hydraulic kind of pressure release function all along? Um, softening the impact of law on, uh, on in its application to actual people. Um, and if we eliminate discretion, if we eliminate that safety valve, then like what is going to compensate for it? How can we somehow build in some mechanism to make law um, in all of its positivistic pitilessness responsive to our humanity? Um, and I want to encourage with this piece basically us to think about that when we rush to embrace law as pure form prediction. Thank you all very much. Thanks.